You can turn in your Bible, if you'd like, back to the book of Proverbs. Uh, We're in a verse-by-verse study, the book of Proverbs, coming to the end of the study sometime soon, I hope. Um, And we've kind of pulled the car over to talk about uh, a a problem. It's a problem that, to some degree, we all struggle with. Um, There are more overt situations and uh, more temporary situations, but... Uh, the, the, the place we're at in Proverbs right now is a little bit of a mini-series, a mini-study on addictions. And you'll remember, um, just by way of review, we're not in your notes yet, so to the screens it's just going to give you some review here. You'll remember that in the Proverbs we've got a dad sitting down with his boys and he is teaching them, he is demonstrating biblical parenting, but most importantly he's showing us what it means to walk with God in practical ways. And, and this, this is so simple that sometimes we miss it, but I'm going to say it. Faith and the theological things we learn about God and about Jesus and about people and about the church and about life, that information only honors God insofar as it is translated into a life of application and worship. And what Proverbs does is it says, okay, this walk with God, this fear of the Lord is the way the Proverbs describe it. What it means to walk with God, let me show you what that looks like in the home, in the workplace, in your personal life, in marriage, with purity, uh, in, in um, hobbies, in communication, in finances. It, it just It takes what our faith is supposed to be and it gives us hundreds of examples of what faith is exercised in life is supposed to look like. And Proverbs is awesome because you can fall out of bed, open Proverbs, read one verse, and gain something amazing about what it means to walk with God in that particular part of life that day. So very helpful. And one of the ways the Proverbs help us to learn what does it mean to walk with God is it warns us about certain people we might meet in life that we want to avoid or at least be careful of. And it Furthermore, says not just avoid those people, but it says don't be one of those people. So we, we, we learn, about, I call them the bad guys in Proverbs, the fool who says in his heart there is no God, Psalm 14.1, the adulterous woman, that, and that really is just the person that's not your spouse and the danger of sexual morality and temptation, the sluggard, as the name implies, this is the lazy person uh, that just that habit will destroy so many parts of your life, the violent the one lacking self-control. And then where we've parked the car right now is to talk about the addict. And we don't typically think of Proverbs as having much to say about addiction. But the, the Bible demonstrates here for what we might call the, the, the alcoholic fool or the, the drunken fool. And uh, just by way of review, you can look up on the screen there, sort of the three anchor verses that have uh, been our launch pad in the past weeks. Proverbs 23, 20 and 21. Do not be with heavy drinkers of wine or with gluttonous eaters of, ma- of meat. For the heavy drinker and the glutton will come to poverty and the drowsiness will cloud a man with rags. Or chapter 20, verse 1. Wine is a mocker, strong drink is a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated or misled by it is not wise. Chapter 31, verses 4 and 5. Admonition to uh, King uh, Lemuel. Uh, We talked about what that may mean but but the point is it is not for kings O lemuel it is not for kings to drink wine or for l- rulers to desire strong drink lest they drink and forget what is decreed and pervert the rights of all the afflicted and we talked in, in those verses you can five you can find five or six different reasons why alcohol and drunkenness 
and we can extend that out to other addictions and say there's five or six reasons here why we need to really, really be careful. And uh, we talked about what Scripture is according to uh, the Scriptures, so I'm just going to skip ahead to where we're at uh, today, but I wanted to give you that background for those of you that haven't been here recently. So here's where we're at today. Um, We're going to take everything we've learned in the last four weeks, and we're going to try to answer... Uh, to this scenario, help, I'm addicted, or help, I have an addicted friend. So maybe it's a family member, it's a friend, maybe you said, you know what, Um, there are some things in my life that have become so habitual that they really kind of control my life more than they ought to. And uh, so let me give you some examples, okay, just because, you know, you hear help, I'm addicted, and no one wants to put their hand up and say that's me, I understand that. But but, uh, this, this is where the Bible is so... Uh, helpful. The Bible says um, you don't have to be in a residential treatment program or in an AA 12-step program to be an addict. I mean, I hope you've seen that there there is an addict in all of us. It's called remaining sin. It's called the flesh. And praise God, we've been redeemed. We're no longer under bondage. We're no longer slaves to sin. But that addict, so to speak, through the flesh, I'm per, I'm personifying here but you get it that that addict is still there and if we are not careful even as redeemed people we can walk in the flesh instead of walking by means of the spirit we can live to please self instead of pleasing god we can we can look backward to habits we formed before christ recognizing that those habits are still alive and well in our life today and if we're not careful those things can steer us off uh, off of the path of righteousness. So, so let me give you some areas. We, we have some young theologians here, right? There's some young theologians in the back, young theologians, young theologians here. Well, let's talk about some, some temptations that our young people might face, and then we'll talk about some for the old people, like the rest of us, okay? So we're thinking about things like entertainment, right? And, and so my, my, uh, my young theologians here, we can think um, like, uh, like video games, right? Video games are, are good, they're awesome, and in... Certain video games can be awesome, let me say it like that. And, and in moderation, that is one of God's good gifts that we can enjoy. But what happens in video games? Talk to me here, where are my gamers? What, what happens sometimes in video games? Yeah, it becomes an obsession, right? And they want to take over your life. Uh, I'll, and I'll give you an example. We were at a bo- uh, board meeting, and uh, our current director is Heath Lambert, who pastors in Jacksonville, Florida. And you remember, just a few weeks ago, they had a gaming convention in Jacksonville. So all these high-end video game people converge at a convention, and they play one another on these big screens and whatnot, and it's, it's a video game convention. Well, this guy didn't win, and he pulls out a gun, and he shoots the people that beat him. And then starts firing at random and then takes his own life. And you go, now that's an extreme example, but it shows you how a video game can get totally out of proportion. And, and, and you know, again, that's an extreme example, but it may be that you're so into this video game that um, you're neglecting other areas of your life that God would want you to honor. Or maybe it's, maybe it's entertainment. Now we can talk to the young guys and the old guys. Uh, social media, Netflix, music. Hobbies, leisure, uh, which many of which are God's good gifts, and we ought to enjoy them as God's good gifts. But uh, we don't want to let those good gifts 
have a more important role in our life that they need to have. And the point that, you know, I'm in the garage working on my guy project, I'm building something or I'm fixing something instead of being with my kids and being with my wife, keeping up with my bills, you know, if, if my hobby over here, I'm spending all this money and I don't really have money. And so now I'm making bad finance. So you see, it can be anything. There is an addict, so to speak, in all of us. And uh, so when you hear help, I'm addicted, don't think, oh, that's for the other guy. It's for us. And, and I, would, I would challenge you, and I'm, and I'm not trying to say I know everything about you or anything like that, but there are probably areas in all of our lives where we say, you know what, I need to be careful of that area. Because if I'm not careful, that area could get too big, could get too overwhelming. And, and I'm talking right now about wholesome, righteous things. There's a whole other thing that can say, I'm addicted to something overtly sinful. I'm addicted to pornography. I am addicted to alcohol. I am addicted to a drug, prescription drug or illegal drug. Uh, you know, th- there's a whole host of unrighteous things we can be addicted to as well. Um, so let's be humble. Let's be honest. Let's remember we're here as a community of faith to help one another. But let's try to hear from God to, to sort of digest everything we've learned down to how do I help myself in terms of seeking the Lord if it's me that's struggling and how do I help a friend? So just by way of review, this is where we left off last time. Um, Paul Tripp, and I learned this from him years ago, very helpfully says when, when you're dealing with addiction, you have to think about it on two levels. You have to think about it as the symptom addiction. That's the substance, right? That's the drugs, the alcohol, the video games, the pornography, the gambling, the hobbies, the social media, and again, it doesn't have to be something overtly sinful. It can be a good thing that is made into something that's too important. So we have to identify that. What is that? And then what we need to do is also remember that there is a heart issue behind that, and this is where we've really tried to develop this. And and, Okay, so, so let me ask you this. Why is the alcohol itself not ultimately the problem if you're trying to help somebody? Why is it not the alcohol itself? Yeah. Yes, that's right. So, so Nick said it's used as a means of escape. So there, there is something that the alcohol does for the person that is attractive. Maybe it's escape. Maybe it's having a good time. Maybe if it's relaxing. Um, maybe it's just forgetting about life and tuning out for a while. And and that is really the. I mean, the alcohol is just the means by which. Those heart issues, those heart desires are pursued. So when we think about repentance in our own life, when we think about helping somebody, yes, we need to say, get rid of the alcohol in your uh, pantry. But we also need to say, hey, you know, you need gospel ministry in your heart. There's a reason that you're turning to that in an inordinate way. So this is, again, review. What are the desires of the heart? Remember we talked about uh, Bobby Bass, right? Uh, uh, Our favorite angler, Drew Fortney, back there was helping us. That we are led away and enticed by our own desires. We are deceived by our own desires. Well, how does alcohol do that? How does alcohol deceive us? This is the part where you jump in and tell me what you learned over the last few weeks. I hope you learned something. That's right. Yeah, that's exactly it. Yeah, alcohol promises to solve your dilemma. I like that. It's going to make you feel better. It's going to give you a good time. It's going to make you relax. It's going to allow you to just chill and forget about everything. And, and 
And the crazy part about most sinful desires is they're half true, right? You know, if, if I go grab a, a big old pack of beer on my way home and binge and get crazy drunk and, and to, to escape the problems of my life, am I going to be able to escape for a little while? Well, sure I am. So it's half true. And then like Solomon told his boys, right, the adulterous woman, remember, you know, she looks good, right? And in the end, she's as bitter as wormwood. She's sharp as a two-edged sword. Says, yeah, there's some pleasure there, but she'll take you to hell in the long run. And that's the problem with the deception. It's partially true. So we have to help people to see that those desires are deceitful. We have to address those. They're going to keep going right back to the alcohol until you help them to renew their mind in terms of the lies that are associated with the alcohol. We also, uh, so desires, the wants, the pleasure, the lies there. What are the habits that are formed? Good night. We're creatures of habit. And uh, we talked last time, uh, right at the end of our class, about the Hebrew word derrick. Remember that? The, the wagon tracks in the road that make these really well-worn tracks. It's the Hebrew word derrick. And it means way or habit. How can a young man keep his way pure? Psalm 19, Psalm 119.9. Um, that's the word way. How can a young man keep his habits, his lifestyle pure? And, and the, the point is there's this habitual nature that when we do the same thing over and over and over again, it creates these tracks, so to speak, in our heart that make it very easy to just sort of fall back into that behavior without ever even thinking about it. And sometimes we get stuck in things that aren't helpful is because I just get up in the morning and I pick up my phone. I just get up in the morning. It's the first thing I do. Well, that might set my heart down the wrong course, right? I'm turning to social media and I'm filling my mind with all of that before I've spent time with God, before I've said good morning to my wife or my kids. And, and if, that, if, if that's a habit, if this has become a habit, you have to address those habits. You have to do something to change those habits that reinforce the desires and the lies. So I don't think we got this far. So if you look on the, on the, just look up here on the screen and I, is this in your notes? It's probably not in your notes. So just look at it here. So the idea is, okay, it starts kind of on the right hand side there with a heart struggle, right? I want something. I want alcohol to make me feel better. I want it to make me feel restful or escaping or whatever. So there's some heart struggle and that leads me to seek the fulfillment of that heart struggle in a physical substance. Alcohol can do this for me. Alcohol can give me a good time or make me to relax for a little bit. So I pursue that. But then what happens? Well, I'm, I'm okay for a little bit. And then I get to the end of it and my heart is not satisfied, right? That's, that's a Proverbs 20, 23. You know, I, I'm beat up. I'm drunk. I'm, I'm throwing up. I'm, I'm a mess. I'm a wreck. People are taking advantage of me. And what do I do? I seek another drink in the morning. And you go, what? That's, that's insanity. And that's the point is that the physical substance does not ultimately satisfy your heart struggle. So then what do I do? I think I need more. And it creates this vicious cycle of addiction. This is how the Bible pictures what our secular friends call the cycle of addiction. We just understand it in very different categories. So what's the solution? The solution is you replace the cycle. I have a heart struggle. I'm, I'm, I'm discouraged. I'm overwhelmed, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm wanting some peace in my life, I'm, I'm wanting uh, joy or happiness, and instead of turning to the false idol of alcohol, what should I turn to? Not a trick question. Turn to the Lord. 
Turn to the Lord. You know, Psalm 16, in your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. Verse 11 of Psalm 16. Yeah, it's a Sunday school answer. Turn to the Lord. But what does that actually mean? It's not just, you know, turn to Jesus and all your problems will be there. It's turning to Jesus for help. It's, it's Hebrews 4. He has grace and mercy to help in your day of temptation. Well, how does that grace and mercy come? It's not through some, you know, just sort of magic. I throw up some, you know, easy lob prayer to heaven and then Jesus takes away all my problems. No, no, no. I turn to the Lord and then he answers. He provides that grace, first of all, through his word. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. He provides that grace through the people of God, through, through a church like this where I can go to my brother or sister and say, I need you to help me. I need you to hold me accountable. I, I, need, uh, I need you to check up on me. I need you to help me with some of these struggles. I go to my pastor and I say, hey, I'm really struggling with anxiety and to be honest, I've been turning to alcohol and I know that's not the right thing and I'm, I'm stuck and will you help me? And that, that's where uh, discipleship and one anothering and biblical counseling can really help. So I want to turn to Christ, not in some simplistic way, but in a robust way, in all the ways that Jesus is going to offer help to somebody in that situation. And I find that that leads to heart satisfaction. And it's not like I turn to Jesus one time and all my problems go away. That's not what I'm saying. I turn to Jesus and his means of grace, and I find on the other side, what? True happiness true peace, true help, not forever, but in a way that as I continue to follow this cycle, well, now new habits form. Now I'm learning to turn to Christ and his means of grace instead of turning to things that aren't going to help me. Sorry, guys, I'm neglecting you down here. So I turn to Christ, my heart satisfied, new habits, and the more I do that, I change the derrick of my life. I change the way, the lifestyle, the habit of my life. And so that's how God intends for us to find our way out of a situation like this. Now, one of the ways that we're going to do that, and this is kind of picking up the notes here, turn in your Bible with Matthew, to Matthew chapter 5, because what God prescribes many means of grace, uh, meaning God tells us in his word the things that we ought to do by grace through faith, that are going to help us if we're stuck in a situation like this. You know, maybe it's not, uh, maybe it's not uh, uh, video games. Uh, maybe some of you are, are really stuck when it comes to Google research. Now, now I, I, I'm on to you here, okay? Because um, this is, um, you know, you used to have to know stuff. You used to have to know stuff. Now you don't have to know stuff. You just have to have access to Google. You go, Google, tell me. Or you don't have to do that. You know, Siri. I don't want to say Siri because someone's phone might go bling. But, um, uh, you, right? And, and there are people that are addicted to hyper-Googling everything. And they are always researching, always looking, always, you know, what's that? A, go- a hyper-Googleist. I like that. I like that. I, I, can I use that? And, and, and this is this is the profile of such a person. Yeah, hang on. You're right there. What's that, honey? Oh, don't don't bother don't bother mommy right now. Hang on, hang on. Right, and 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 that's it. And they they live their life before the idol of an iPad or a phone. Now, to be clear, 
I like Google. I even use Google. And like many of God's good gifts, it can be used in a wholesome, helpful, moderate, Jesus-honoring way. But like a lot of his good gifts, I can get make this an inordinate behavior. And, and what happens is, well, and the way I've seen it happen is, it, it's, it's, a, it's a fear-driven Google pursuit that I have to know exactly what to do in this situation of life. I have to know the best. I have to know the most accurate research. I have to know all this. And, and I can't rest until that fear has been resolved in Googling to the point that I feel like I understand the issue and can implement what I learn. Now, I don't know, I'm, I may be just totally being crazy here, but I see this regularly. And the Bible would say, praise the Lord for Google insofar as it's used wholesomely, but, but that, that's not what we do with our fears. We, we, we don't resolve our fears in Google. We resolve our fear with faith. Right? We act, Christianity is about acting in faith, not fear. So how do we do that? What are some practical ways? Well, God tells us, actually uh, the Lord Jesus in particular tells us in Matthew chapter 5, what to do when there is a behavior or a substance or an activity or a situation that has been a source of temptation. Uh, Would someone read Matthew chapter 5 verses 29 and 30? Someone read that nice and loud, please. Wow. I mean, just, just let that sink in for a minute and, and have the sobering effect that I think Jesus intends for it to have. Jesus is saying that the willingness to be radical with your sin, your fight against sin, demonstrates true faith. Right? Because he says, if, if you're not willing to be radical, and, and let me, and this is... Uh, most commentators understand this to be hyperbolic. Jesus is not actually favoring physical amputation. It's hyperbole. He, he's, he's exaggerating to make a point. What he's saying is, if there are things in your life that are just continue to lead you down the road of temptation, he says, get rid of them. You've got to get rid of them. And so we, we call it the principle of radical amputation in discipleship. Um, You've got to be willing to do that. And, and of course, Jesus says, if you're not willing to be radical in your fight against sin, what's the danger? Yeah. I mean, that's not, it's not like, well, you know, you're a second-rate Christian or you might be stuck in life of turmoil. He's like, you need to, if you're not willing to do that, Jesus is calling your faith into question. That's the way I understand this. He, he's not saying, it's not a prerequisite to salvation. He's not saying, you know, go do that and then you can be saved. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is the willingness to be radical is an indication that your faith is real. And conversely, a lack of willingness to be radical in your sin is indicative of the fact you're probably not a Christian. And that's like crazy serious, isn't it? Which means um, the heart of the true child of God wants to kill sin in their life. And we are willing to do whatever is necessary, whatever godly righteous means are necessary and that may mean 
that uh, this little baby needs to go. Right? Or it may mean that there at least needs to be some protections on it. Uh, I don't know what you do in, in your family. In our family, nobody has full-blown access to the Internet that's unfiltered. From, from dad on down, because I know my heart. I know temptation. I know my flesh. I know what I'm capable of in a stupid moment. And I just don't want that temptation. i got enough problems with other things, right? I don't want one more thing tempting. So that's one way we've tried to honor uh, this principle. So, so he, and, and this is glorious, guys. It's the hardest thing to do to radically amputate the thing in your life that's leading you into temptation. But if you have the faith and obedience to do it, like Jesus is saying, you will find a weight lifted off your shoulders. You will not believe the relief that you have when that source of temptation is removed. And that's what Jesus is getting at. So what does that mean on your notes there? If the substance is a medication, a legal drug, or alcohol, we probably want to get a doctor involved because sometimes the coming off of those things can be pretty, pretty gnarly, pretty um, dangerous even. Um, if the behavior has significant physical or medical factors, if you're dealing with an anorexic, a cutter, something like that, uh, where there's a, um, a real uh, medical, physical problem, again, we would want to get a physician involved. But in general, what we mean is we, we want to think about all factors related to the addiction, behavior, substances, relationships, influences, locations, and radically amputate it, get rid of it. So if we're dealing with someone who's struggling with alcohol, we're removing alcohol from the home. Um, it may be that we don't visit restaurants where that would typically have been a temptation in the past. We just don't go there anymore. Uh, it may be that that Sunday afternoon football party with the guys where alcohol is typically part of it, that I, I don't do that anymore. I find some other arrangement where I can watch football and hang out with my, my guy friends, um, you know, where alcohol would not be a part of the issue. Okay, so that's what you're, you're radically amputating. Uh, it's blocking software on your phone. It's, um, man, what other ideas? I mean, talk to me here. Um, Video game moderation, right? It, it, it may be, it may be, call me crazy, that you have to throw away your video game, right? I'm, you say, Pastor Keith, that's pretty radical. Well, that's why we call it radical amputation, because it is. I remember as, um, as a new Christian in college, um, to, to my shame, um, I took a whole bunch of CDs, music CDs, and just threw them away one day in a dumpster. Because it's like, I, that's not my life. That's not what's important. And, and I just, I, I don't want sin as part of my entertainment in so far as I'm able to control that. So, okay, so radically amputate the substance. Number two, restructure your life. And uh, many of you have seen this before. Think about your life. This, this chart here, um, uh, if you would like it, just email me. I'm happy to, to send it to you. But it's it's not complicated. It just kind of thinks about the different areas of your life. So marriage, your physical health, your work, your school, church, social activities, whatnot. And, and here's the thing. Let, let, let's take an example that, that everybody can relate to. Let's say you've, you've got the guy who's drinking too much beer and it's associated with hanging out with his buddies and watching football. Okay, so let's let's take that as an example, just as one example. So... I want you to look at this chart and tell me what are all the areas of his life that he needs to consider changing by God's grace 
if he's going to overcome that uh, drunken behavior that he's involved in? What are some of the areas he might have to address? Okay. Okay, so social activity. So how would that need to change? Okay, right. What else? That's good. Yeah, quit buying the alcohol. Sure. Uh huh. So, and then there's some financial implications there. What else? Yeah, quit. Yeah, yeah. Redo the budget, right? Uh, and maybe there's not even a budget there, but yeah, there's some financial implication. Yeah, alcohol's expensive, man. It, you know, it's it's pricey, and and uh, and not that. Not that other things in life, you know, everything you buy at Best Buy is pricey too, but I mean, you, that does have an implication here. What? How, how might it affect family and children? Talk to me about that area, family and children. Yeah. Yeah, see, see, the Bible says don't just try to stop doing the wrong thing, replace the wrong thing with the right thing. So maybe you say, hey, maybe instead of, you know, like Dave said, the social activities need to change. Maybe instead of having my, my football buddies over that are all wanting to, uh, you know, drink too much, maybe I sit down with my boys and we watch football together as a family and we make popcorn or wh- whatever you do, right? You, you, you change it. You restructure the family part of it. So now you're promoting something wholesome, still enjoying the good gift of football, but you've changed it so that it's more of a righteous pursuit and and you're promoting a biblical priority, which is family. You see how that works? So you're looking at all these different areas and, um, you know, maybe maybe part of the problem is, and this is very often the case, maybe we start looking at this guy's work and he's doing fantasy football all day. So the problem that alcohol is related to the fact that football itself has become too important. Now, I don't want to step on anybody's toes. I realize what state I'm in, Texas, and I realize um, we're like the football state, right? And we love Oregon, and you guys have football too. We understand that. But we kind of we claim that, right, as our, all right? But that, isn't that part of the problem? It's the whole package, right? It's... It's football has become too important in my life. It's my identity. It's, you know, and you know, because tomorrow morning there will be some people at your workplace that are grumpy because of the outcome of games today. So we look at the whole picture and we restructure things. Um, And again, so there's so many examples we could give there, but, you know, so you're looking here, some categories, what, what items need to be put off, meaning what areas do I need to really just get rid of? How do I replace it? So maybe I'm replacing time with the guys who want to drink with time with my, my boys and we have a wholesome family time watching football. Um, you know, if it's, if it's social media, maybe I'm, I'm putting off sort of a chronic ding, ding. Remember the ding? You turn off the ding. Did you turn off the ding this week? Did you turn off? You can turn off the dings. Your life does not have to be ruled by the ding of your phone. Let me give you freedom, brothers and sisters. Um, you do that, right? And so, so you turn all that off, and, and maybe you have a dedicated time of your day where you catch up on social media. Nothing wrong with that. 
but it's not ruling your life all day. It's, it's not a constant distraction so that you're disengaged in your work, you're disengaged in face-to-face relationships. So you, you say, okay, after the kids go to bed and uh, you know my wife's doing this or my husband's doing that, then I'm going to get on, I'm going to catch up on social media. Okay, well, see, now, now you put it in a wholesome context. You've put off the sort of whenever it, ha- it happens and then you've replaced it with a more intentional time. Um, think about structuring our life for godliness. Now, you also have to address the heart in addiction, too. What are the ruling desires? What lies have been embraced? What patterns have been developed? And uh, how, by the way, how are you going to do that? Let's, let's say that, that you would say, and let's pick social media. Let's say you would say, Pastor Keith, if I'm being honest, uh, I'm, I'm doing too much social media. How do you figure out the ruling desires behind that behavior? How are you going to figure that out? Okay, what is it? That's good. I like that. What is it about that activity that makes you happy? What are some possibilities? We're all amongst friends here, right? We're all united in Christ, so let's not be shy. Let's try to help each other. What what are some possibilities? Boredom. Gossip. Yeah, gossip. Knowing every little... You you think it's, it's the heart issue of I have to know first. And I have to know... Everything. And I, I don't want I don't want it to be Sunday morning that someone tells me something and I go, I didn't know that. Right? And that, that's the fear, right? And so that fear of being in the know and being up to date drives you to be inordinate in social media. That's good. Very good. Yes, Brian. Uh, maybe just to be in the center of everybody else's thoughts. You know, just to tell yeah. Are you saying that social media promotes selfishness and self... Is that what you're saying, Brian? That's <laughs> Well, and, and you think about that. Praise God for social media. You know, I, I talk to missionaries, uh, friends I wouldn't otherwise see. Um, I mean, th- there is a wholesome way that being in the know through social media can honor God and ought to honor God. But yeah, when, when, it's, when it's a platform to bring attention to me and what's going on in my life, and, and, and you know, some people it's like, um, I feel like I, I went through the day with them, you know, because they're cataloging everything they did all throughout the day. And, and you know, there's a time for that. But is it, is it promoting self? What else? You're doing great. Other ruling desires. What's that? Comparison. Oh, no, no, yeah, no. That's true. It, it's like, oh, I want to see what she did or she's wearing or what she bought or what you know yeah it is it it promotes um envy and coveting okay so you get the idea so you can see that the person that's ruled by the ding of facebook may not have the same heart issue right it may be any one of those things it may be something else and so gospel ministry happens when i identify that desire and insofar as it does not honor god what should i do with it what should I do with a desire that's really not honoring to God? Amputate it. Repent, right? Confess. Say, Lord, life is not about drawing attention to me. Gossip is sinful. Um, envying my neighbor is prohibited. And I, I need forgiveness. I need repentance. Help me to replace that with, you know, maybe I get online so that I can better minister to people. Maybe I get online so I can pray for people better. I mean, those are wholesome ways to do that.
But you've got to get to the hard issues. We talked about lies and patterns. And with that, you must address deceit and lying. Uh, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. Look at this together with me. Is this making sense? You tracking with me? Nobody's tracking with me. Great. You want me to start over? Is it too convicting to say anything? Just remember, you don't have to teach it. Yeah, Ephesians chapter 4, and look with me at verse... Um, Look at me at verse 25. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 25. This is, uh, these are examples that the Apostle Paul is giving about how to do this process, right? What needs to be put off? What needs to be put on? This is describing what we call the biblical process of change. And the first thing, the first example he gives in chapter 25, or chapter 4, verse 25 is this. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Because the reality is, embedded in most addiction, is deceit and lying. Now, why, why does deceit and lying have to be part of my social media addiction, my video game addiction, an alcohol or pornography or drug addiction? Why does, it, why does deceit and lying have to be a part of that? Right. Right. So you're talking lying, like lying to yourself, you mean? Right. Okay, that's good. Yes, I like that. So I have to lie to myself because I have I probably have some people in my life that if they were to know what I'm doing would say, hey, that's not helpful for you. That's not good. And I also have to lie to myself because I have what the Bible calls a conscience. And insofar as that conscience is operating at any level, when I'm doing some of this stuff, there's a conviction that happens. There's a conviction that ought to happen. That's Romans chapter 2. That our conscience either condemns us or acquits us. And um, so I've got to lie to myself to deal with people and to deal with my conscience. I also have to do it to, to hide what I'm doing, to justify what I'm doing. So this is one of the hardest parts, and, and I don't have time to go through all this. I gave you several points there. Just uh, I hope will be helpful. Um, you know, if you're, if you're trying to help somebody... You're looking for areas like hiding, sneaking, blaming, manipulating, avoiding, being silent, changing the subject. And, and my young theologians, you know, you know how this works, right? Mom comes into the room. She says, hey, why aren't, you, why aren't you doing that chore, right? Why aren't you at the table? And, and uh, so, so students, what are we tempted to say sometimes when mom walks into the room and we're not doing what she told us to do? Okay, are you a student? <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. Okay, so let's talk about our our uh, 18-year-olds and under here, okay? So let's let's talk to them, and I, I appreciate that. You're right. You're right, Mrs. Hubbard. Yes? I was thinking about that. Okay, and, and what are you doing? And I appreciate your honesty. So, Tucker, what are we trying to convey to mom when I say that? Right. Okay. And that sort of uh, 
There you go. Yeah, we have a saying in our home, delayed obedience is disobedience, disobedience okay? Um, yeah, so yeah, it, it's, it's, it's a stall tactic, right? And, uh, and, and here, here's, here's the little secret. We old people do the same thing, right? We, we struggle in the exact same ways. And we need to realize that when someone comes in love confronting me, that I have to humble myself and be willing to receive that correction um, and, and, and to see it as the loving thing that it is. That person, I mean, it's not always meant like this, but to see it as God's rescue, by pointing that out in my life, God is helping me. He's rescuing me because he doesn't want to leave me in that sinful behavior. He wants me to be a more honest, a more humble person. So I have to address deceit and lying. Um, dealing with relationships. What happens in all addictions? What happens to relationships? What happens if you do this all day? Yeah, just a minute. I'm okay. Or, or worse, you know, you're you're sitting at the you're sitting at the dinner table, your family's there, right? And you're okay. What happens to relationships when you do that? They disappear, or they are damaged. And and uh, you know, some of you could speak to this from the families you grew up in. And the difficulty that many of you grew up in, in homes where addictions were present. And it, it has an a incredibly detrimental effect on relationships. It destroys marriages. It destroys parent-child relationships, um, friendships. So we have to deal with relationships. So let, let's just think briefly about that. First of all, there are some relationships that need to end. What relationships need to end in addiction? Enabling relationships. So these may be people that cover for you. These may be people that do it with you. These may be people who encourage it in some way. Um, You know, maybe maybe it's the drinking buddies. Maybe it's the college roommates. Um, And you know, one of the things that Proverbs does, have you noticed this? Are we supposed to love our neighbor? Absolutely. That's biblical. It's the second greatest commandment. But you also need to be very, very careful about your neighbor. Right? There are some people that God would say it is unwise to have a close sort of hanging out friendship with them. Certainly we want to be evangelistic, we want to be gospel oriented, but we don't want to get in a relationship that ends up having a negative impact on our own walk with God. Also, there are some relationships that need to begin. If you're still in Ephesians chapter 4, just look back at the verses right before that. Look at verse... uh, 15 of Ephesians chapter 4. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part. That's all the believers in the church, okay? They cause the growth of the body for the building of itself in love. So what relationships do I need to replace the unhelpful relationships? The body of Christ. Yeah, I mean, and I hope through our home groups, through this context, through other ministries, women's ministries, Bible studies, uh, youth, Awana, I hope that you have one or two people that know you well enough, that you've invited into your life, that know you well enough and who love you, who can help you and who can help me. Um, We need those sorts of relationships to really thrive, not just in dealing with addiction, but in, in all of our walk with God. Relationships that need repair, 
man, this is, you know, the spouse that's hurt, the children, the boss, uh, relationships that have been negatively impacted and need ministry. How about this? Relationships that have been replaced by the addiction. What, what's the, what's the heartbreak of the mom that does this? And there's the, the kid tugging on mom's pants. Mom, mom, just a second. Hang on, just, what's the heartbreak of that? The addiction has replaced the relationship. You see that? And it is. It, it's it, just what Rich said. It's a, it's a valuing of the addiction over the relationship. And in some cases, the addiction is replacing the relationship that should be going on. And, and we know this. I mean, talk, talk to people that have struggled with alcohol. They talk about alcohol like it's their friend that's always with them. It's, it's personified. And so there's a the addiction very often takes on relationship qualities in a metaphorical way so to speak and so we need to think about that and then finally of course the most important relationship to love god with all heart soul and strength uh, to love christ and make him preeminent colossians says we need to address financial matters and i'll just kind of leave that uh as that that can be as messy as it comes um you know a uh, situation uh, i'm aware of right now uh, not in our church but another situation that I'm involved in where um, the the pastor that's doing the counseling, the situation is a friend of mine. So we're talking about this case and um, there's this guy who's spending money on his addiction. And uh, the counselor said, you know, um, I think you need to give your wife all the credit cards and let her just be in charge of the credit cards. And I think that um, you you don't need to have cash available to you. So you'll have a debit card where everything is itemized, right? You see exactly what the money is being spent on. So there's some accountability there. But sir, if you want to grow, if you really want to change, you need that level of accountability to get the financial part of this under control. You say, well, man, that, that's pretty radical, right? You're going to tell a grown man he can't have his own credit card and he can't have cash? Jesus would say, do you want to go to heaven? Or are you comfortable with the road that leads to destruction? I mean, that, that's, that's Matthew 5. It, it, it's radical, but it's true. So we have to address the finances. Deal with other personal issues, um, things associated with addiction uh marriage and parenting issues heart issues you know why do people turn to addiction there's a whole list think about this guilt anger fear worry anxiety shame loneliness doubt pleasure failure discouragement grief pleasure sorrow we just keep right on going right And, and one of the things that we need as we struggle and one of the things that we can do for other people is to reach out to them and try to care for them with these issues right Maybe somebody's struggling with grief and they're turning to the bottle because they're just sad. They're just grieving over some loss, some tragedy in their life. Don't minimize the ministry of just being their friend. Just check on them. Just love on them. Just be with them. Pray with them. Give them a call. Say, hey, how you doing today? You were on my mind. I prayed for you this morning. Um, Pastor Terry calls it the ministry of presence. And that's one of the things we believe in our church is, is one of the main ways we do ministry. We just, we just love each other. We hang out with people. 
and we're with each other. You, you don't have to, can I say this? You don't have to be an ACBC certified counselor. Good night. That, that's, we're not talking about that. You can love and care for the people in your life just by being with them, praying for them, encouraging them, pointing them to the scriptures, telling them that there's hope in Christ, that things can be different as they turn to him, and that your commitment as their friend is to walk with them every step of the way. We can all do that. That's what what Romans 15, 14 says when it says we're all competent to counsel. You don't have to have a degree. You don't have to have a certification. Just be a faithful Christian with what you know and love that person. And, And genuine, helpful, transformative ministry will come from those times. Last thing. We only change with any sin problem, including addiction, insofar as repentance is realized. And so you have to craft for yourself and for the person that you're helping a repentance plan. Repentance, and I know it's a word we use all the time, but just remember, what does repentance mean? It means to turn, right? It it means I'm going in the wrong direction, I stop, I realize I'm going in the wrong direction, I turn, and I start to go in the right direction. it's, It's turning from my sin to God for help and asking him to help me to move in that right direction. And that's easy to say. You say, well, I know I need to stop. I know I shouldn't do this. I'm going that way and I want to go that way. I just want to know how. Well, that's repentance. Repentance helps you do that. So what is repentance? Well, look on your notes there. It starts with confession. Uh, remember, in, in, most, in most situations... There's always in repentance a vertical component and there is often a horizontal component, okay? And uh, can you guys see that over there? Okay. So every sin is first and foremost against the Lord, isn't it? So 1 John 1, 9, if, I, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I've got to deal with the vertical part of the relationship first. I confess my sin to God. And then if my sin was against another person, then I confess my sin horizontally. I go to that person and I tell them that what I did was wrong and I seek their forgiveness. That's Luke 17, 3. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. And secondly, there needs to be immediate, comprehensive, radical amputation uh, um, and a commitment to total abstinence. Um, Proverbs 28, 13 is so picturesque here. Let me, let me read this to you um, in terms of the... Uh, the level of commitment we're looking at here. There has to be a commitment to this sort of um, this sort of sold outness when it comes to my sin. Now you know the verse, Proverbs twenty eight, verse thirteen. Here it is He who conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. Wow. Do you get that? It, it's it's that it can be this way or the other way. It's the contrast. Remember the contrast use in Proverbs where you can do this or you can do its opposite. And in this case, hear, hear the promise. He who conceals his sin sometimes gets away with it. No, that's not what it says. It's he will not prosper. Maybe get away with it for a little while, but ultimately he will not prosper, the scripture tells us. It's not going to work out well for you. But, and now, now listen to the freedom, listen to the alternative. But he who confesses and forsakes it will find compassion, mercy. Um, why, 
why would we keep going back to the slime pit of our addiction when God offers us freedom? Right? That, that, that's what it's saying. You can have the slime pit and, and stay there, or you can have freedom. But here's what it'll take. You have to humble yourself and admit to God what you're doing. Stop hiding it. Confess it. Forsake it. And you'll find that mercy that you want. If a substance is involved, we want to work with a physician, talked about that. There needs to be intentional time in the scriptures. How do our desires change? How do our behaviors change? They change when God works in our hearts through the ministry of the word. So things like the gospel and identity in Christ. I won't go off on that because Pastor Terry is going to talk at length about that in Romans chapter 8 today about the spirit and the flesh. Okay, so I'll hold that... um, uh, let him develop that. We want to do directed study on the symptom and causal addiction. Remember, I'm dealing with the substance and also the heart issue. Um, other issues of study. How to view the body. You know, a lot of addiction is people forget that if they're a Christian, what does Romans 6, or uh, 1 Corinthians 6 say about your body? If you're a Christian, tell me about your body. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. It's not yours because... You have been bought with a price. And Paul just says, you know what? You're not your own. You don't own you. (laughs) Praise God. We're part of his family. He owns us. And so everything I have from my body to my stuff to my, my money, my talents, it all belongs to him. And so he says, therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God or 1 Corinthians 6, therefore glorify God in your body. And a lot of times we just have a very self-focused and wrong view of the body that God has given us. We think it's my body, I can do with what I want. Now that's not true. So we craft a a repentance plan that helps them to confess sin, radically amputate sin, get people involved that can help, and then spend intentional time in the scriptures. Those four elements need to characterize um, a minimum repentance plan. And, and the reason it says craft a repentance plan, whatever your addiction is, whatever the addiction is you're trying to help somebody, you need to craft a plan that's unique to you. So don't just say, I need to, I need to radically amputate. You need to say, I need to get all the alcohol out of my house this afternoon and I need to tell somebody that will hold me accountable that that happens. I need to remove the Facebook app from my phone today. It's out of control. And I need, to, I need to tell my husband so that he can lovingly, graciously hold me accountable in that. You see, it needs to be that specific. Repentance only... Let me say it like this. Repentance is usually more transformative the more specific you make it. If I can say it like that. So get as specific as you can. And then the last thing you need is a repentance plan. Or, or excuse me. Um, oh, I'm behind. Excuse me. Um, some more stuff about repentance, small group discipleship, uh, biblical counseling may be appropriate depending on the nature. Get, uh, get involved in a ministry and serving others. Since, since most of this addiction stuff is very self-focused, you, you, you kill it, you starve it by replacing it with serving, right? Not, not being served, but serving. And then um, some mentoring, discipling. I'm thankful for the, the men's ministry have where that happens, the women's ministry with the women's mentoring that goes on here. That'd be a great place home groups are designed in part to provide this sort of accountability okay and then the last thing you need is some sort of temptation plan what do you do the next time you're tempted you need a simple step-by-step plan that says when i'm tempted here's what i'm going to do 
So I'll give you an example. Years and years ago, um, I was helping uh, a young man who was struggling with pornography, and he was a college student off somewhere. And um, uh, what would happen was he would uh, he would go back to his dorm room after class, and uh, his roommate wasn't there, and that was where he was tempted to look at pornography. And uh, so I helped him craft a temptation plan. And the first thing you're going to laugh, you're totally laugh, but this is exactly what we came up with. It's exactly what he did. And praise God, it really helped him. When he was tempted, he was to leave his dorm room and go to the Taco Bell down the street. Because the reality is he's probably not going to look at pornography in Taco Bell. And the, the first step was get out of the place of danger. Right? This is the Joseph method of dealing with sexual temptation. You flee, right? You leave your coat and you flee and you get out of there. Um, like Proverbs says in chapter 5, don't go near the door of her house. Um, so that's what he would do. And then he would pray for help. There was an accountability person. He would go there. He would pray. He would call his accountability person. And then we had some specific scriptures to get in uh, to uh, help his desires change. Now, that doesn't necessarily fit in every situation, but do you see the point? You need to get out of the place of temptation um, and get to a place where you can meditate on the scriptures, call out to God for help, get somebody else involved. Okay, next week, seven biblical principles for understanding the Christian and alcohol. It should be a spirited and uh, exciting discussion, okay? Because that's, that's, the, that's the footnote to this is, What is the Christian's relationship to alcohol? And uh, we'll talk about that next time. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word that has helpfully uh, instructed us to watch over our heart with all diligence, uh, knowing that everything about our life flows out of it. Lord, help us to guard our heart, whether it is a, a, a specific sinful struggle that we have today where we need repentance. Will you help us to humble ourselves and repent and confess that and maybe reach out to another brother or sister in Christ that can help us. And Lord, if it's a, it's not something overtly sinful, but it's one of your good gifts that has become too important and our life has been wrapped too much around it, will you help us likewise to repent and uh, to radically amputate and to seek to renew our minds and change our thinking as, a, as we study your word and as we seek help from other brothers and sisters that you would help us Lord, we we want to honor you. Please minister to us that there would be no other master in our life other than Jesus Christ. Will you make it so? We pray in his name. Amen.